Let's go ahead and look again at a statement that we've been using over these last three weeks so far. And it is a summary of these five solas of the Reformation. And again, sola simply means in Latin, alone. And these are five doctrinal truths that alone are the basis of biblical Christianity. And and what this statement is, and it's at the top of your handout, it says, as revealed by Scripture alone, Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This week, what we'll be looking at is Christ alone. Christ alone. Stephen Wellam, a theologian, he said, the word spoken by God, the faith given by God, the grace extended by God, and the glory possessed and promised by God cannot make sense apart from the Son of God who became man for our salvation. Christ alone is the focal point of our faith. Christ alone is the basis of our faith. Christ alone that we're going to be looking at today is the crown jewel of the five solas of biblical Christianity. Christ alone is worthy of our praise. And this is what I'm going to be showing you today from Scripture. Christ alone is worthy of our praise because... Christ is the perfect prophet. Christ is the perfect priest. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. And fourthly, Christ is the perfect king. And this lesson is going to be built around, and you'll also see this at the top of your handout, it's going to be built around 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And so I've put that there with really the, the sub-point explaining it underneath. But it says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's start with a word of prayer and then dive into Christ alone. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would just expand our understanding and expand the affections of our hearts in Christ alone. We pray for clarity this morning, and we pray that you and your Son would be glorified. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So let's hop in. Number one, we're going to see that Christ alone is worthy of our praise because Christ is the perfect prophet. And the way that I've set out the outline, I've actually put, we're going we're gonna to be all over, the, all over Scripture this morning. We're going to be resting a lot in Hebrews, in passages in Hebrews. 
And um, so what I did, I've got it set up with these passages that we're really going to be looking at. And there's area if you want to take notes, but I encourage you, go back and this week, feel free to read through these passages, meditate on these passages. So I've just put the references there um, for you all to to follow along with. But first, going all the way back to Deuteronomy, we find that that a prophet... The prophet who is Christ was promised. And this is actually in Deuteronomy, this is Moses who's speaking to Israel before they go into the promised land. And starting in chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And then we actually find that Peter, as is recorded in the book of Acts, Peter actually shows that Christ is the fulfillment of Moses' words here. And in Acts chapter 3, starting verse 22, uh, he quotes this, uh, Peter quotes this. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So he's quoting back to, to the passage that we just read. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then going to verse 26, God having raised up, excuse me, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. This prophet, this new Moses, this is Jesus Christ. And notice some of the things that he says about this prophet, Christ. He says his message is authoritative. It says you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Christ, as a prophet, his prophetic word is absolutely authoritative. And disregarding his message, it means destruction and separation from God's people. But on the other hand, obedience to his message is going to result in your being delivered from your wickedness, your turning from your wickedness. And we can actually see elsewhere that Christ is the prophet of God, and we're going to look specifically, and so if you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to be flipping um, around within Hebrews. So if you have a little tab or, or flag in your Bible, go ahead and slide it here, and we're going to be spending the majority of our time close to this tag. So starting in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let's look at the prophet Christ from here in these first few verses in Hebrews. First of all, notice it says, God spoke by the prophets. So in the past, we had prophets 
who delivered God's word. They were the vessels through which God delivered his word to his people. And this message was delivered in many times and in many ways. And we actually find this, you know, the prophets existed throughout the history of the Old Testament, so it was many times, but also in many ways. There were proclamations where the prophets would proclaim to the people, but you also had proclamations that were more visual in nature. And Ezekiel, for example, who had to lie on his side in delivering a message to the people or had to cook food over dung as a message from God to the people. So the messages were delivered in many ways, and sometimes they, they were written words. But this is how God did speak, speak to his people. But notice he says, but he has spoken to us by his son. This prophet, the son, is not like the others. And if you think about it, the greater the messenger the greater or more important the message. The greater the messenger, maybe the more honor is given to the message. And we, we understand this. If Doug, the youth guy, calls your house, hi, Doug, but if John MacArthur calls your house, you, you hit the floor, right? The greater the messenger, the more important the message it is. And we even say our, our children understand this. If you send your six-year-old to go tell the older brother, come down to dinner, they probably don't move as quickly as if mom herself goes upstairs and says, come down to dinner. The greater the messenger, the greater the message. And this messenger is the son of God. And how great is this messenger? The author of Hebrews continues, he is the heir of all things. All of existence, all of creation is his inheritance. All of creation is what is due him. He is the creator of the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, if you think, and in particular, we, we see this in the Old Testament, during the Exodus, you had the Shekinah glory of God. And so Exodus 13, Exodus 40, it, they had the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory, which is the resting glory of God, would come into the tabernacle. And also you see in 1 Kings chapter 8, when they, when they, they had the temple, there also was the resting, the visible representation of God's glory that would come down and rest in the temple. The Shekinah glory is God's visible representation of God's presence among his people. And Christ is the most visible representation of God's presence. Christ is the ultimate Shekinah glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Or your, your translation might say exact expression of his nature. Al Mohler, he said, Christ is the exact expression of the Father's nature. Christ shares the divine nature with the Father as the second person of the, of the Trinity. 
And this is where the divine son is different from human son. No human son is the exact representation of his father. There is a close relation, but not an exact representation. Christ, however, is an exact representation. He and God are of the same divine essence. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God's prophet to us is his very son, Jesus Christ. And let me read from John 12. In John 12, starting verse 44, we actually see, and I'll read here, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not, re- may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The Father sent the prophet Jesus. The Father commanded the prophet Jesus. In verse 49, it says, what to say and what to speak is what the Father commanded him. In verse 50, it says, his commandment is eternal life. The prophetic word of Christ is eternal life. The prophet's words that are spoken are God's words, and those words are eternal life. And that is why, in verse 50, I say as the Father has told me. And so why does he say as the Father directs? Because if you look in verse 50, he says, therefore, right? So why is it that Christ says what the Father has told him? He says it's because his words are eternal life. Therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Christ came to bring eternal life. He says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But not only is Christ the better and more perfect priest because of who he is, the Son, he's also the better and more perfect priest because of what he is. Christ is, he is the prophetic word. We all know John 1.1. John chapter 1, it says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ is the perfect and final prophet of God. But he doesn't just speak God's word. He is the word made flesh who has dwelt among us. So if we go back and look at 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, 
because of Christ, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom from God. Christ alone is worthy of our praise because Christ is the perfect prophet. He became to us wisdom from God. He is the perfect prophet. He is the perfect word, and his words bring eternal life. But our salvation, it requires more than just the prophetic word of Christ, which brings the good news of salvation. We also require that one will bring us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Apart from those, we are hopelessly condemned under God's righteous wrath and judgment. And as we read, this is why Christ came. He came to bring those in darkness into life. So, Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ He alone is worthy of our praise, not just because he is the prophet, but because he is also the perfect priest. So flip over a few pages to Hebrews 15, 15, and I want us to look at a definition of what a priest is. So I said 15, how about 5? Let's go to to Hebrews 5, and and let's look at a definition of a priest. So starting in verse 1, and we'll, we'll be going, actually, we'll be spending a little bit of time here looking up through verse 10. Let's look at the definition. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So, a priest must be a man himself. But the priest is going to act on behalf of men to God. And what is it that he's going to be doing? He's going to be offering gifts to God, and he's going to be offering sacrifices to God. That is what the priest does. He is a man who goes to God on your behalf, bringing your gifts and your sacrifices to God. And then verse 2 is actually referring to these human Levitical priests. He, you know, these human priests, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset by weakness. Because of these, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. So priests from among men, by by necessity, by uh, by our humanness, they are all sinful and weak. And they must first offer sacrifices for themselves and their own sin before they can start representing man to God. So the author of Hebrews, he had actually already laid out in chapter 4, the chapter right before there. So in verse 15, it says, "We, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. So we see that Christ is our high priest, but he is not like the other priests. He is the perfect priest. And, oh yes, Hebrews 4.15 shows us 
that he can sympathize with our weakness, but it's not because he himself is weak and sinful. He can sympathize because he is tempted in every way that we are tempted, but he is sinless. Christ is better than all other high priests. The priest, he must be the man. He must act on behalf of men to God. But we also find the third thing is the priest must be appointed by God. A priest does not choose to be the priest. Look in verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when God has called, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. For as he he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, I think many of of us are are familiar with him, but he comes onto the scene in Genesis chapter 14. And he actually leaves very quickly. He he leaves the scene uh, just as quickly as he comes in. But in verse 18... Genesis 14, we find that Melchizedek is, he's the priest of, I mean, I'm sorry, he's the king of Salem. So there's actually a pagan land that he's, he is uh, king over. But verse 18 also says he was a high, or he was a priest of the God most high. And then we see again in Psalm 10, we don't really hear anything about Melchizedek until Psalm 110, And this is what was actually quoted just now. And Psalm 110 is referencing the Messiah, saying the Messiah is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the Messiah, Christ, is a priest. And we'll actually look a little bit at Melchizedek in a little bit. But continuing with verse five, uh, in Hebrews 5 and verse 7, we go in understanding that Christ, even from the Old Testament, we know Christ is the priest. And in the days of his flesh, what did Christ offer up? Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from his death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So in these verses, in 7 through 10, we actually see that my outline points two, three, and four. They're, they're all right here, and they're all kind of messed up here, but that's okay. But we see that Christ is the perfect priest. We see that he is the perfect sacrifice, and we see that he is the perfect king. Um, all three of those points there. In verse 10, we find that he's the perfect priest. He was designated by God a high priest. But Jesus is also the perfect sacrifice. He himself, the high priest, is the sacrifice. And we see that in verse 8, that this was through what he suffered. His suffering, and we'll discuss this a little bit more deeper later, but here, his suffering was 
He, the priest, offering up himself as the sacrifice to God on our behalf. But also, Christ is the perfect king because he's the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And looking back to Psalm 110 that we just referenced, where it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, and here's where Melchizedek starts being theologically very important. Because in uh, um, Genesis 14, 18, we saw Melchizedek being both a king and a priest We have no one else in Scripture aside from Christ himself who was both a priest and a king. The king of Israel was from the line of David. The priests in Israel were from the, they were um, Levites. And so you could not and you would not have someone who was both of the line of David and a priest in the same order, in, in the same man. The only priest kings in Scripture are Melchizedek and Christ. And this is what Psalm 110 and what Hebrews is talking about when, he, when he's saying, you are in the order of Melchizedek. You, unlike all the other priests, you are also the king. Christ is the purpose of this passage. And understanding that even though it doesn't line up in our outline, right? the purpose is not to try to make the outline pretty. The purpose is to show that Christ, who is the priest, he is the sacrifice, and he is the king. This is what this passage is trying to show, or this passage is showing. And this is why Christ alone is worthy of our praise. He is the perfect priest. In Hebrews 7 and 8, I really recommend go, go read this this week because it's going to break down and go in more in depth about Christ as the priest. We're going to um, turn now to Hebrews chapter 7 and just look at a small passage of it. But both of these chapters, read Hebrews this week. Uh, but Hebrews 7 and 8 really help us understand Christ as um, the priest. But let's look at Hebrews 7, starting verse 21, and let's try to understand a little bit more about the priest Christ. Verse 21, but this one, Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The four, listen to this comparison of the old priest versus Christ. Christ is better. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all, for all, when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Christ is the perfect high priest. In verses 21 through 23, we see that his priesthood will last forever because he will not die. He is for forever. But in verse 25, while he is alive for all eternity, he is seated at the right hand of God, making intercessions for them. In verse 26, who is this priest? He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. Christ is the perfect priest. Our high priest, when he makes offerings and sacrifices on our behalf, he is making them without weakness. He is making them without sin or flaw that we should fear approaching God. He is eternal. He is at the right hand of, of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is the very Son of God. He is the very visible representation of God's glory and is the very nature of God. Christ alone is worthy of our praise because he is the perfect high priest. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ, our perfect priest, brings us sanctification righteousness, and redemption. And this is through the sacrifice that he offers. He offers the perfect sacrifice. Christ alone is worthy of our praise because he is the perfect prophet, perfect priest, and the perfect sacrifice. Now, we already saw and we just read how he is holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And these, treat, these traits that make him the perfect high priest, they also make him the perfect sacrifice. If you flip over a page or two to Hebrews 19, let's start reading in verse 11 and look at this sacrifice. So... Yeah, know what I mean, not really what I say. <laughs> Hebrews 9. <laughs> Thanks, Rodney. So Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the, of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish? How much more 
Will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So to understand what he's talking about, we need to actually understand what is described in Leviticus 16. So Leviticus 16 is all about the day of what? Anybody know? Atonement. The day of atonement. This is the single most important day on the Jewish calendar. Once a year, you would have the priest first offer sacrifices for himself, and for the priest's sins, he would sacrifice a bull. But then, after paying for his own sins with a bull, he would then pay for the sins of the people through the death of a goat. And once a year, year after year, the sins of the people were paid for by the death of this goat, and then the high priest would take the blood from this goat, enter into the tabernacle, past the the holy place, into the most holy place, and in the most holy place, you have the literal, not figurative, the literal seat of God where the Shekinah, the resting glory of God would be seated on the mercy seat on top of the rock, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, the high priest carried the blood of the sacrifice through this veil that separated God from the rest of the people and brought the blood to the mercy seat and God atoned or the, the, the blood atoned for the sins of the people. So understanding that, in verse 11, we now understand Christ appeared as that high priest. But he's not going into the tabernacle, this tent. He's going into the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, as in not created. Verse 12 tells us he entered once for all into the holy places, not this model or picture of the throne room of heaven, but going into the actual. Christ went into the actual throne room and the presence of God before God himself in heaven. He was carrying the atoning blood for our sins to God's very throne room, to God's presence. And it was not by the means of the blood of goats and bulls, but it was by the means of his own blood. What is more effective at atoning for the sins of sinful people than what is more effective than the blood of bulls and goats? The blood of the one who is holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and seated and exalted above the heavens. Verse 12, thus securing an eternal redemption. The reason we are able to have an eternal redemption is because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. And here's the logic. 
Starting verse 13, let's walk through. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So if a cow and a goat and a, a sinful priest who's been sprinkled, if, if those are able to sanctify the flesh, then, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why is Christ's blood so much more effective? Because he is without blemish. He has not committed any sins. He is sinless, but it's not just that he is sinless, he was also actively righteous. Romans 5 shows that all who were dead in their trespasses and sins, like we talked about last week, that they are all dead in Adam. But 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the second or the last Adam. When Adam actively chose to sin, all of his descendants were now dead in sins because of Adam's sin. But now with that last Adam, when he actively lived a righteous life, all who are in Christ, the last Adam, his descendants who all follow after him, are alive in his righteousness. Why didn't Christ come down and just die on the cross? It was because he lived his 33 years on this earth. He was tempted in every way that you and I were, but he lived righteously without sin. And because he was living righteously without sin, perfectly obeying the law, he had perfectly lived and earned an active lifetime of righteousness. And his righteousness is available to be given to those who are in him. Christ had a life of active righteousness. And this is what, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says, He who knew no sin, Christ, became sin on our behalf, our sin went on to him, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you are in Christ, you not only have his sinlessness given to you, but you have his righteousness that he lived and you can't live given to you as well. We had a sin nature that has been removed from us and the guilt of our sin has been taken off of us and given to Christ and in exchange, Christ's perfect righteousness his holiness, his separateness from sin is given to us. He lived righteous, righteously. We lived sinfully. 
And his sacrifice permitted the greatest exchange to take place. Christ is the perfect sacrifice because he both perfectly lived sinlessly, having committed no sins, Hebrews 4, but also Romans 8 talks how he was perfectly righteous, having fulfilled the law in righteousness. This is a whole lesson in itself, and we've got 15 minutes left. So it's not part of this lesson, but it's another one. (laughs) Christ alone is worthy of our praise because he is the perfect sacrifice. Look again at verse 14. What happens because of his sacrifice? It purifies our conscience. How much more will the blood of Christ, through who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to, serving the, to serve the living God? Romans 2, verses 15 and 16, it actually talks about the fact that all people, even those who do not know the law, who have never heard of God, that all people are actually guilty even apart from having heard the gospel. If you had not heard of the law or the gospel of of Christ, Romans 2 tells us that their conscience will be their prosecuting attorney. And they will stand guilty because they have broken their conscience. The Polynesian headhunter does not want his head to be hunted. Even if he has never heard the gospel, he has done what he does not want done to himself. And on that last day, apart from any exposure to the law or the gospel, his conscience is what is going to stand as the prosecuting attorney before God, and he will be justly condemned for his sins. But Christ, through his perfect sacrifice, can even purify the conscience It can purify the conscience of those who are trying to earn salvation through the works of the law. It can purify the conscience of those who previously were oblivious to the law. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. And and let's look briefly at Hebrews 10 and see other aspects that show how this priest and this sacrifice work together. In Hebrews 10 verse 1, it says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since these worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the very fact that people continue to sin and are conscious about their sin shows and proves that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sins of the people. And that's why they were offered year after year. And on the Day of Atonement, they were offered 
But not just on the Day of Atonement, it was every day the priests were continually sacrificing um, animals for the sins of the people. But notice verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. I mean, just look at the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Bulls and goats sacrificed daily, sacrificed yearly. Christ, verse 12, offered one time. It was for all time a single sacrifice. Earthly priests, daily service, repeatedly offering the same sacrifice. And it never takes away any sins. But Christ is done. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Bulls and goats can't remove sin from men's consciousness. But look at verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, even God the Father no longer even recalls to his mind the sins of his people. They are gone. Christ alone is worthy of our praise because he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect prophet. He is the perfect priest. He is the perfect sacrifice. Now, look at verse 19 and see. I'm just going to read through this. See how the writer of Hebrews applies these truths to our lives. And then go read it this week and write down how you can apply this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and the full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled and clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near because of who Christ is run your race well 
Run with your fellow saints. Run with your local church body. Draw near to God with confidence. Not in confidence in you, but in Christ. Because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ alone is worthy of our praise. Fourthly, because Christ is the perfect king. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ is the Lord. Christ is the king. Christ is the priest king in the order of Melchizedek. Christ is the sovereign. We cling to Christ alone. Christ alone is worthy of our praise because Christ is the perfect king. We find in Philippians 2, and you're probably familiar with this, but starting in verse 9, it says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of of God the Father. As Lord, whose enemies are his footstool under him, Christ possesses the authority to command. He is the perfect king. If you claim Jesus Christ as your king and Lord, I want you to listen to what your king says for those who would come after him. If you go to Luke 9, 23. Luke 9, 23. And he, Christ, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's look at this verse. It says, he said this to all. This is a crowd. We've got believers. We've got unbelievers. They're together. Consider this an altar call from Christ where he is sharing the gospel and sharing what is it that must be done for those who wish to follow me. He says, if anyone, this is not a description of what the best followers of Christ would do. This is what all or anyone must do if they are to follow Christ. Or if you were to put this in the negative, you could say, one who does not do this cannot be my follower. And Jesus gives three actions required of his followers. If anyone would come after me, let him deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
Denying yourself and taking up your cross, they're very similar to each other. So denying yourself is saying no to my own desires. It's no to my own pleasures, my own lusts. Taking up your cross is actually taking that one step further, and it's actually saying I'm going to put to death myself and my desires and my pleasures. And when I put these to death, I'm going to instead live in obedience to God. Denying yourself, dying to yourself, this is merely following the very footsteps of Christ who denied his own desires in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he took up his cross to obey God literally to his own death. And we do the same when we take up our own cross and begin pursuing God through faith and obedience. And if you would be Christ's, after denying yourself and dying to yourself, you must follow Christ. Simply, we live as Christ lives. Christ said in John 5 and John 6 that I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me, namely God. Christ is only requiring his followers to do what he himself did. Our king denied his own desires, died to himself, and followed God to his own death. And this is to be done daily. How often is it that we deny and, and die to ourselves and follow Christ? It is daily. It's not a one-time decision. It's not something that was done back when I was six or 12. It must be done daily. The aspect of denying and dying to yourself is what is required by your king. One of the great preachers of our time today actually said, I've had the privilege of leading hundreds and hundreds to salvation over my decades as a preacher. And 19 out of 20 of those people have been sitting in the church most of their lives. 19 out of 20 people that he led to Christ thought that they were saved, but had never denied themselves, died to their se- themselves, and followed their king as their sole source of salvation. One theologian said, faith that saves is not just any faith. What makes sal- faith salvific is the object of that faith. Abraham's faith was in God in Romans 4.17. We see that. And the God that Abraham trusted is not just any God. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Saving faith is directed to the creator God, the God who made the world, the God who intervenes in it, and the God who gives life where there is death. Christ in the gospel is the object of our saving faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the only plea that I can give to you is to examine your life. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? 
Do you look to your past works that you have done? Do you look to a past profession of faith that you made? Do you look to your knowledge of the Scriptures? Your knowledge of the Scriptures is not Christ. Do you look to your involvement in a solid church? Examine your life. Does your life reflect one that is denying yourself in obedience to the perfect king? Is dying to yourself in obedience to the perfect king? Do you actually follow your perfect king? If not, cry out to God. If this is not the mark of your life, cry out to God. Cry out in your heart. Now is the moment and the time of salvation. Christ alone is worthy of your pleas for salvation. Christ alone is worthy. He calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for demonstrating your own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ, your Son, died for us. If there are any who do not know you, we pray that you would grant life and repentance. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.